Hello, you're listening to No Such Word as Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today, I get to sit down and chat to Dr. Isabella Clegg, who you guys might know better as the Dolphin Doctor on social media. Hi, Izzy. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hazel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to sit down and chat with you again. Um, A lot of people might not know this, but we've known each other for quite a while, haven't we? Yeah, since the beginning, I think, almost, but for me. Yeah, for me as well, you know, from from our internship days. So when I was an animal care and training intern at Dolphins Plus Key Largo, Florida, Izzy was a research intern. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was yeah. doing, um, yeah, my master's at University of Miami. Yeah. So, you know, for a young person who likes marine mammals, uh, how do you end up deciding I'm going to go and do research in America and this is going to be my focus how, how did you how did you end up with that dream in your mind yeah um I think I it wasn't always a specific dream to marine mammals but I definitely always wanted to work with animals and had just done this course um actually at the University of Bristol on animal behavior and welfare which I'd found super, super interesting, especially the welfare part, which I thought I wasn't going to like. So I was really like passionate about this new area that I wanted to study. And I, yeah, I'd always been interested, I think, in in ocean conservation. And I'd done a sort of a few projects um, at a gap year after school. So I kind of, I don't know what sparked putting them together, but like I've, it was literally, I think I found myself looking online at masters in specifically marine mammal science. I don't remember a like moment of, right, I'm going to do this. It just, it felt like it happened. But um, at that time, there was only two masters programs in the whole world that did specifically marine mammal science. And that was um, St. Andrews and University of Miami. And I applied to both and I didn't get into St. Andrews and I got into Miami. So what did they do in St. Andrews, Scotland? Yeah, yeah. Well, but what, that's a much more research focused uh, sort okay. of wild populations and, yeah. and pure research. Yeah, this and this one in Miami was really interesting. And this is something I de- would definitely recommend for people. It was a they call it a master's of professional science, which means that it has a few more elements of, um, yeah, like internships and practical modules and um yeah really diverse it was a really diverse mix of modules so for example we you know one of our modules we had to um like learn how to drive a motorboat because you know you need that kind of skill when you go out to do research or scientific diving or like we did sort of um research projects at the um dolphins plus facility so it wasn't just a, a straight research course which i really liked that's really interesting that it gave you, you know, so many different skills that you, I'm sure now use in your life, oh, yeah, absolutely. you know, that driving yeah. the boat, scuba diving, you know, which yeah. sound like really cool things just to learn like, oh, great, yeah. like I get to, I get to go out in Miami on a motorboat, it's great. Um, yeah, exactly. But yeah, you don't really think about the fact that those are skills that you are going to need when you're out in the real world and, you know, you're, you're doing this research. So you yeah. did your your master's at the University of Miami. Um, you supplemented that with your practical experience at Dolphins Plus. 
And then going on from that, you know, you are a doctor, so you do have your <laughs> PhD. Um, how did you decide where you wanted to go after that, after your master's? Um, yeah, I think, again, a, a crazy bit of timing. And I don't remember, I don't remember consciously making decision to do a PhD. I was looking about for other jobs and there weren't many jobs, as you can imagine, going I really wanted to work in a zoo as sort of an animal welfare researcher or coordinator or something. There weren't many jobs going then for that and there still aren't that many. So I think I like applied for a few, got close to a few. And then um, I'd read this paper by, I think it was Donald Broom at Cambridge with a guy called Niels Van Elk, who works, who used to work at the Heart of Lake Dolphinarium in Holland. Um, anyway, and I got in contact with him and just said, I think I've, found the paper really interesting is there any chance you're looking for um someone to work on a project like this to sort of develop it further and yeah again crazy timing and he was like yep we're looking for a phd student i don't think they'd advertised it yet um yeah so it's really really lucky um and then there was a bit of a process then to sort of get the right funding and it was a collaboration between three different parks in europe so had to work out sort of where I was going to live but I ended up yeah, at the University of Paris um, uh, that's why I did the PhD for three years. Yeah so you worked primarily at Park Asterix I believe. Yeah. Yeah with yeah. their population of dolphins and what was it you yeah. were what was it you were studying with that population for your PhD? Yeah so that was definitely yeah, where I was based um, each day and again lucky enough I did it was sort of a PhD in industry type course so it, Again, I was actually a full-time employee of Park Asterix. They had supported, they'd funded quite a lot of the projects. Wow. Um, yeah, with the, with the agreement that I had freedom to research whatever I wanted, which was amazing. Um, but yeah, so I spent pretty much every day at Park Asterix, but uh, the research that I did also applied, I collected data from Heart of Ake and from Planet Sauvage in Nantes. So luckily that was another strength of it is that I was able to have more than just one facility of eight dolphins at the time. I think it was a total of maybe nearly 50 dolphins at one point, which was really, really useful. Um, and yeah, the point of the project was to um, develop welfare parameters for assessing the welfare of dolphins under human care. Um, and that was an interesting, I guess, kind of challenging step for me because in my master's, I kind of race forward at 100 miles per hour and we develop the seawall assessment this sort of framework of measures that you can apply to um yeah dolphins under human care which is really great and an initial step and sparked a lot of ideas but at the same time there's lots of those measures in there that were still just proposals and initial ideas and as you know like a lot of there's still a lot of science and um, validation missing of some of these individual um, welfare measures so that was the point of the PhD was kind of to slow down take a step backwards and really pick a few of those individual welfare measures and um, you know do lots of experiments on them and collect loads of data over more lots of different dolphins and see whether they actually were measuring welfare. So what um, measures or parameters did you end up deciding on? Yeah so we looked at um, mostly it was behavioral measures um, and that was my PhD was in ethology, which is the study of animal behavior. So that was a natural kind of place for it to focus. Um, but the main ones we looked at were synchronous swimming or pair swimming. So when dolphins choose to swim um, close together or in a group, um, we looked at anticipatory behavior. 
um, something called cognitive bias, which is when you test whether an animal is makes more optimistic like or pessimistic like decisions. And that really interestingly correlates to um, welfare really closely in animals. Like more with us, it seems to be more linked to personality, but in animals, um, you can change from, they can change from optimist to pessimist. And that reflects optimists are uh, more likely to be in better welfare, pessimists in, in poorer welfare. They switch, you know, between the two, depending on their welfare state. So, so their environment really kind of alters their exactly. mood and their decision-making and, and how yeah. they behave. It's, yeah, it seems to be. I'm sure there is some level of personality um, level optimism. And of course, like how you interpret your environment is also that can be um, individually driven. So for sure. But the experiments so far, not just dolphins on a load of different animals show that, yeah, you can put, for example, a rat in a in a barren cage and it will be a pe choose pessimistically, make pessimistic judgments. And then you move it to an enriched cage and, you know, we, only a few weeks later, it will start making optimistic judgments. So this, yeah, this test of cognitive bias is really, really interesting. And um, so that was quite exciting to do that at, at doing a PhD. Um, so how do you and, how do you yeah. determine what is an optimistic choice and what is a pessimistic choice? Yeah, great question. Um, so the best way to explain it is an experiment we did or we did uh, that they did in dogs, which we kind of copied for the dolphins. But if I explain it in dogs, if you have a dog uh, in a room and either you present it with a bowl on the left side of the room, which is always full of food, or a bowl on the right side of the room, which is always empty. And you present one or the other again and again. And as you can imagine, the dog will start running towards the left side of the room because it knows it's going to be full of food and it will sort of wander over to the right because it learns that it's going to be empty. And once you see that consistent difference in speed of approaching those bowls, in a sort of equidistant arc, you could present a bowl in the middle where it can't see or smell if it's full or not. And the optimistic dogs will be the ones that run towards that bowl, hoping that it's going to be full. And the pessimistic dogs will be the ones that, that go towards it slowly, thinking, you know, expecting the worst, thinking it's going to be empty. Um, okay. So it's these ambiguous cues. Yeah. You have to design a test where you've got two, um, and it, obviously there's a lot of training concepts involved in here, which is so interesting, but you've got two conditions, strongly conditioned positive and either negative or less positive stimuli. And then you've got your ambiguous cues in the middle where the animal doesn't know what outcome is going to happen yeah. and it has to make a, a choice. Yeah. Yeah. I find all of this so interesting. You know, I'm, I'm not a researcher by any means, but I've been very lucky to be involved in a lot of different research projects. And for me as a trainer mm. to, to watch the animals make those decisions and how their behavior yeah. is altered, I find it absolutely fascinating. So fascinating. Yeah. And, and, you know, and they're so integral because for example, with this cognitive bias test, when we applied it to dolphins, we did a sort of first run of the test and it wasn't quite working properly. And the dolphin trainers were obviously the key to me collaborating with them and them showing their knowledge of, okay, let's try this. And maybe they're not understanding the difference because of this. And so they were key to the excess of that experiment that we, in the end, yeah. got those dolphins to, to, to get the difference. Yeah. Yeah, you see that really, really quite often, especially when you're you're dealing with cognitive research projects where it involves concepts or things that yeah. are multifaceted or multi-layered. And you know, as a trainer, sometimes you can just be approaching it in a certain way that's not allowing your animal to they might understand part of it, but they might not understand all of it. So as a trainer, it's kind yeah. of your job to go and help the researchers and be like, okay, we need yeah. to make we need to make sure that these animals are actually, you know, understanding and doing 
what yeah. you're studying. Um, yeah. So it's definitely a teamwork, you know, between between researchers mm. and trainers. So what were your findings for your PhD? How did it how did it all end up? Yeah, well, so for that um, composite bias study, we found that the dolphins in the group that showed the most optimistic like responses were also those that were synchronous swimming or pair swimming most with each other, kind of suggesting that and it's not um, rocket science, but that close social bonds are linked to positive states in, mm-hmm. in dolphins but that in itself is is really hard to hard to prove obviously it's hard to get inside the head you can see that dolphins pair swim together but um it's not necessarily a good thing you can always you can also have um you know some some dolphins don't maybe not choose to swim together or they sometimes bunch together if there's stressful events going on so mm-hmm. it's yeah pairing these different indicators together is always a good sign that you're on the right tracks with with a welfare indicator yeah you Um, see that you see that so often um especially because they are such social animals but they're still beings sentient beings that have their own thoughts and emotions and you know even though like i'll use the example of the whales at marineland you know if all four of them in one moment can be swimming beautifully together and you're just observing as a trainer like oh look at that perfection this is amazing and then like two hours later one of them can be in and having a hissy fit and be off by themselves in a mood in the corner Mm. you know or throwing it one of the younger ones throwing a tantrum you know there's a multitude of things that can affect their mood and and how and how they're behaving um yeah but just in general, with regards to welfare, you know, because that is yeah. your specialty. And for me personally, I think it is we need more welfare research in order to be able to understand how we're meeting animals needs and how we can progress within the field. So what was your takeaway from that study? Mm. I think, yeah, from that study and from the whole PhD, and this also came as kind of a personal takeaway for me too, is that this was the first time for me, I, well, it was the first time for me, and I think at the moment, objectively in the field, that there was evidence of positive welfare in captivity. And um, by that, I mean, um, there's there's lots of like suggestions of it. So, you know, great reproduction rate, long lifespan, um, as we said, positive um, social behavior. But there's also been lots of negative um, indicators as well. So obviously there's lots of debate about whether lots of people say are oh, can can cetaceans actually be in positive in positive effective feel positive effective states in captivity and for me this cognitive bias study again there's still like limitations and there could be it could be there could still be errors with it but for me and I think for how it was received um it was good evidence that at least some dolphins in captivity can experience positive welfare states but um I think the interesting bit has really come afterwards, I guess, with my work for my consultancy, because then it moves on to the bigger question, well, how many dolphins or cetaceans in captivity are in positive welfare and for how much of the time? It's not good enough that we just have some for fleeting seconds. We, you know, we see a positive welfare state. The massive question is, do they overall have a more positive life than a negative one? And how many 
like what's the proportion in of all the facilities around the world but, I mean, absolutely yes and I think the only way that we can find that out is by studying them <laughs> the only way yeah. that we can find that yeah. out is by you know either we have this massive collaboration of facilities around the world who you know I I think I speak for every trainer who is determined not only to prove that you know what we believe is that our animals are very well adjusted and do have good welfare but I think if we take our own egos out of it we can also say okay well if some of their needs are not being met if we do these studies and find out exactly you know how often they spend time you know in in great optimal optimal states how can we affect what we're doing to improve their lives um yeah you mentioned um animal welfare expertise your consultancy firm Mm. you know you are an entrepreneur so you spoke Mm. a little bit earlier about um you trying to find jobs working in animal welfare and there weren't a lot so uh you kind of went out on your own and just went okay I can't find jobs I'm just gonna make one for myself which I just think (laughs) yeah I think that's incredible um so how did you how did you get the idea to do that you know so many people struggle with the confidence of being like can I do this did you yeah. just say, oh, what the heck, and just go for it? Or <laughs> what happened? Um, yeah, it's a great question. And I'm sure you found this too. I think it's the hardest bit at the beginning of going out by yourself is that confidence. And it sounds, it's like such a cliche saying, but the sort of fake it till you make it thing of you have to show some level of confidence. Otherwise, no one's going to hire you. If you're if you're there saying oh well maybe I can do this for you if you know pay me this much like you have to just you have to somehow just jump in and try it um I guess I yeah I think it was the again the Seawell assessment and speaking to lots of people at conferences and over the sort of years of my PhD and realizing that so many like you said so many people have questions about welfare and wanted research more research and more objective data to kind of help them and yeah I thought that if if I could sort of market it make it a little bit more applied than just this pure research tool um that that this is something that maybe yeah facilities would be interested and maybe eventually you know wider like industry standards or governments or, or whatever um but that was also a really difficult um balance was the 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 difference between having you know doing a PhD doing lots of research on a on topic and collecting scientific data, doing statistical tests on it. And then the other side is applying something for a client uh, in an, uh, where you, can't, you don't do that rigorous investigation, but you're still trying to include some level of, yeah, scientific rigor because you want it to be objective and you want to obviously present them with the, the most accurate results that you think, that you know, the, the, the reflect from, from the data. But that, that has been really difficult. And I think that's another thing that the, and I understand it that the scientific, the traditional scientific community kind of looks down upon because it's it's not pure science. They'd you know some some would say that it's it's yeah it's it's not an accurate way to or it's not a good way to talk to people about welfare that you have to sort of you know do years long studies on it to understand it. But that's I guess that's another part of what drove me. I thought people really wanted at least some kind of information now, and that if I could make it clear to them that this is only an initial assessment this doesn't provide all the answers it's just a way to I guess yeah give them give them a little bit more information than they had at the beginning then I thought that that would work 
Yeah. And I think it's absolutely to be commended because not only are you doing that, but you also have several other different projects that are, you know, in motion that are providing facilities with great small ways to improve their animals' welfare. And one of those ways is your wonderful idea box, um, mm. which is basically a network. Well, you explain it. <laughs> it's your um, it's your yeah, stuff don't let don't let me tell you about your no, idea you're probably, go ahead <laughs> no you're probably gonna say it better it is a yeah a platform on the platform uh, where which groups together um enrichment ideas felicitations and now pinnipeds um specifically focusing on the more complex cognitive items that are maybe harder to make or harder to think of so yeah a way a resource for trainers and caretakers to to get ideas for enrichment and before I go any further, like it is completely driven by the trainers themselves. These are not all my ideas. The idea of it is that, yeah, trainers submit ideas. We like we make it look pretty and put it on the website, but these are all completely trainer-led ideas themselves. So it's a showcase of what people, the best of what people are doing around the world, I think. Yeah. So if any trainers are listening to this and and want to be involved, you know, all it takes is an idea. If you have, you know, an enrichment item, you know, some of the things that I've seen on there are incredible. You know, it's honestly goes out to the Mm. engineering ingenuity of trainers with backyard construction being like, how can I use this hose or how can I use these like leftover vitamin bottles um it really is great and seeing the reactions of the animals obviously is is yeah a, a I love big that, yeah. positive um so how can people if they if anyone listening thinks that they have something they would like to submit how would they do that yeah so if you just go to www.animalwelfareexpertise.com forward slash idea box um there are instructions there on how to First of all, freely access the catalogue and how to submit an idea. Um, and otherwise, you can email me and probably put my maybe email in your show notes or give it to you. Oh, so of you course. Can. Yeah, I will, I will so, provide yeah. everyone with the links that they need for sure. Thank you. Um, so obviously, you have your own consultancy firm. So you have been, you know, living the life, traveling all around, you know, managing to, to kind of work globally, which is just fantastic. Um, what are some of the more recent notable projects that you've been involved in? Um, yeah, I'd say one of them is essentially the, the Beluga Sanctuary project in Iceland. Um, so that is the Sea Life Trust who have moved to Beluga whales um, from China to Iceland to um, somewhere in a place called the Westman Islands um, in actually the, the, yeah, the bay where Kaiko, the killer whale, um, was kept at one point, I think almost 20 years ago now. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's not a release project. The idea is to acclimatise the whales to live full time outside in this um, netted off bay um, in Iceland. And my role is to, or has been since they were in China, to provide, to conduct regular welfare assessments to track their progress over the years and over the changed environment so that we can actually see kind of how they're adapting, but also whether whether we can increase welfare by by doing something like that. I think this um, this particular project of yours really interests me because there's there's mm-hmm. so much debate surrounding it, you know, within the field, with researchers, yep. and even people who don't really have any opinion one way or the other. I think there's going to be a lot of interest to understand exactly, you know, I don't think 
and I'm sure you agree, there's not going to be a definite answer. Were they better off there? Were they better off in the sanctuary? Um, Because you were lucky enough to go to China and study them there. And then you went to Iceland and and have been studying them since. Mm. I'm sure you agree. It's not going to be a, they were better off in China or they're better off in Iceland. I think it's going to be a lot more kind of nuanced than that. Yeah, I think I'm not, I mean, I don't know. Ultimately, I would hope that we can say actually whether they're whether they're better off and in better off I mean like we were saying before are they experiencing more positive states in Iceland than they were in China because we've got all this behavioral data and this welfare data on different indicators so we can kind of see again it's only there's lots of caveats but we can kind of get a picture of what their life looked like in China and what eventually what it will look like out in the bay in Iceland but you're right in that the nuances is, is that it's not like we've just moved them to Iceland and they're suddenly in great welfare as you know with animals there's a lot there's going to be a long adaptation process um, also dependent on their management and how you know how they they how they're managed in terms of that adaptation process it's not just from them it's sort of a see there's there's lots of factors so yeah that is nuanced and I Anyone who sort of kept up with the um, sort of news that they're publishing from that project can see that, you know, they're not, the whales aren't out there full time in the winter at the moment because there are too many variables that were causing them to, you know, not be comfortable yet in that habitat. So they've got their land-based care pool, um, which is just across the bay um, from, from, the, from the actual outdoor bay bit. And then they've got the bay. So they've spent this last summer in there and then they came in for the winter um so yeah it's definitely a work in progress yeah and I think that was you know a point that surprised I don't think it really surprised anyone who has any knowledge of like a deeper understanding of the enormity of this project and this move Mm. but I think a lot of kind of the general public who are following the story you know they definitely thought you know as soon as they're in that bay that's it you know it's it was it was almost like a free willy moment of hooray success um and it definitely you know hasn't I mean it would have been amazing if it was you know obviously all we any Mm. of us want at the end of the day is for the animals to be good um Mm. but there's definitely you know been been struggles you know for the team and for the animals um because how long have they been in Iceland now in and out of the the bay and the the care pool yeah, so they arrived, I believe, in, I think it was June 2019, which is early July. So they've been there, uh, yeah, two and a bit years. Um, yeah. And they've just spent, yeah, the summer summer last year out there. So they've spent definitely more time in the care pool so far. Um, but yeah, as I said, it's not, there's no, like you said, there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to be, they shouldn't be able to adapt to an outdoor pool like that. Um, an outdoor bay Uh, there's you know I know there's lots of questions about sort of pollution levels um, and maybe resident killer whales coming in but definitely from the data I've seen all of that's being tested and monitored and there's for me there's no concerns with with risks to their health or safety that I think the main issue is just um, it's just how to manage them out there it's the the problem in the winter is that it's super cold stormy and these storms just blow in really quickly it's in a very protected area but still it gets really really stormy and yeah the main issue is not actually the beluga whales it's just how the humans can get out there safely and feed them so 
I, I reckon once we can solve that and once we can, I think they, they're reinforcing the um, structure of those outdoor pens, that'll make a huge difference to how we're able to manage them out in the winter. Um, because, you know, if it's windy and stormy, I've, I've seen it, like they just duck down and stay below the surface. Um, but obviously the trainers have to get out there to be able to feed them and stuff. So that's, that's where the issue is. Yeah. I remember reading a, a comment on Facebook and it was, I think it was their announcement when they had made the decision to move little white and little gray back into the, the care pool um, on land. And uh, I, I was reading all of these different questions such as like, Oh, can they not catch fish for themselves in, in the bay? You know, and it, mm. it, it does to me, it does just drive home the, the concept of like the general public don't have an understanding of these animals basic needs, you yeah. know, to to yeah. to think that two beluga whales would be able to source enough food within the bay pen for yeah. an entire winter is that that's that's just absolutely not. Yeah, possible. absolutely. And it's like you said about, yeah, people being surprised when they, they will come back in that. I think is the responsibility of the people who manage the project, but also to some extent the public to do their research. Like we're all guilty of that these days. We read a headline and we make a judgment and don't bother to read further into what's actually happening. So as soon as you'll see a clickbaity headline saying, which I keep seeing on, on like social media that these belugas are finally free or they've finally been released. Mm -hmm. Of course that's like not what's happened, but you can imagine that people are reading that and then when they see the reality of it they're suddenly up in arms that it's it's not the case but yeah that's a it's a wider issue isn't it with with how we sort of digest our news and yeah I mean I think as well for me this is this is a great example of how we can aim to just make animals' lives better. That's all anyone wants, whether they're staying in human care, whether they are living in, you know, a sea, a sea pen, or, you know, whether they're being rehabilitated because they've been rescued and sent back out in, into the wild. Whatever it is, we just want the animals to be the best they can be. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, I think I think your research is is gonna finally give us, you know, that that scientific edge that that we need to be able to to say one way or the other and obviously it's going to be different depending on whatever situation you know these beluga whales were originally born in the wild and then they were mm. you know, moved um, from Russia to China and then now from China to Iceland so obviously that is going to play a part in how they adjust and how they behave and how they act and think you know and that's going to be very different to for instance a bottlenose dolphin who's been born in human care and has lived in the same facility yeah. its entire life so yeah, yeah, you've uh, you've got a lot of work to do. You've got a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of populations to study. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I need some help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but you know, you are a consultancy firm, so if any facilities do want to participate in the research, I'm sure they can yeah. reach out. Yeah, and and students as well. If anyone's listening who wants to do that kind of research or propose a project, please also get in touch. And that's that's part of. So this the past like however long I've been doing it four or five years has been just setting it up and getting these first assessments done um which has now gone really well and the next stage is about like spreading it out further and like um yeah hiring some more people hopefully this year and getting more students to take the assessment themselves and do it I can't at the moment it's not still not um I'm not going to make it just freely available um like published yet because I don't feel there's enough 
again, that there's enough um, validation behind it for it to be taken and just applied as sort of a concrete way of understanding welfare. So I'm still controlling it to some extent by choosing which students are applying it and um, some facilities, yeah, trainers, choosing some of them to, to become sort of trained assessors. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and the difficulty with that, again, is that I think once once you get trainers from a facility doing a welfare assessment on their own animals, they could be, you know, with the best intentions as possible, but it's so hard to be objective. Absolutely. Um, and so as a, as that, a yeah. trainer, I will confirm that we we absolutely yeah. <laughs> have a level we have a level of bias, and of yeah. course, all we want is for the results to say that our animals have good welfare. And you know, that's yeah. that's yeah. not because we want to prove anyone wrong. Like we we just want to believe that. Of course, we do. So yeah. Yeah. yes, there there absolutely would be an element. You know, even if you try your best to be super objective. Yeah. 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 And I think yeah we're working on ways of like how can we take still use trainers obviously to collect data but take some of that objective uh, subjectivity away and I think like technology and automated sort of um, tracking systems for different uh, welfare parameters will be really um, important and um, useful with this obviously yeah just taking out human error or human interpretation from from as much as possible really mm -hmm. absolutely so what in your opinion do you think that marine parks or zoos could realistically do like if someone is listening to this and thinks tomorrow I want to improve the welfare of my animals what could mm. they do yeah such a good question um I would say first of all read up a little bit on it read some papers on what's what we know so far about how to assess welfare in incitations or in the species that that you have um second of all I would say go out there and observe them off sessions like away from the from the training sessions I think that's something that really just really gives such a good insight into if we're talking about what's the balance of positive effective states versus negative if you hypothetically go sit there and watch them for a whole day you'll get a much better understanding of what their full day consists of and I know that's often really hard for trainers who are time poor and have a lot to do and little resources um especially during covid it's been hard so i i know that's a difficult one but um that's i think that's from from working with trainers that's been a real um a real feedback is that they find that really useful and often when i present them with the behavioral results and data even though yeah yeah they spend most of their time with these animals and they know them super well some of it is still surprising and still not what they expected so I'd say go out there and watch them and then I guess I guess make a plan of what you think where you think you might be the sort of areas of their of their day or life that might not be meeting like you said up to that optimal welfare standards also identify the areas which you think you guys are doing really well you might be able to apply that to other animals and other sections um, and then and then sort of formulate a plan but there's, there's loads of cool resources on the internet to, for helping like structure how you're thinking. I think um, frameworks like, I guess for stations, you could use the Seawell assessments that is published and, and yeah, if anyone needs a copy of that, just send me an email again or go on my website and I can get you one. But other frameworks too, like there's one called the Five Domains Framework. Um, and that's, when I say framework, it's just a way of covering all the different aspects of an animal's life. So 
yeah, if you wanted to do a kind of evaluation on your animal, you could get this framework, look at the different sort of questions which will ask you about the nutrition or the environment, you know, is it promoting natural behavior or social interactions or that, and that will help you make sure you've yeah, ticked all those boxes. So yeah. yeah, use all those resources available to you, but there's, there's a lot you can do, I think, yeah. I think that's some really, really good advice. I think fantastic advice, actually, because I I feel very spoiled. I've I've been able to work um, at multiple different facilities and specifically facilities that worked differently. So our day was structured differently. So, for example, with the whales at Marineland, apart from, you know, we had a show in the morning and a show in the afternoon. And, you know, we had usually one in the summer, maybe two kind of um interactions that we would do like a killer oil kind of behind the scenes up close thing but outside of that we never really planned when we would do a session with the animals so we were always just around you know yes we would have mm. to go to the fish kitchen yes we would have to clean but for the most part from you know eight in the morning until you know in the summer eight nine at nine in the evening we were always there, you know, either the animals had, you know, toys to play with, we were doing enrichment, or we were doing research, or we were training. And, you know, for me, what I saw with the pod at Marineland was that they really responded to that. They responded so much to levels of trainer attention. And actually, mm-hmm. if you guys have listened to episode uh, three, which was with Dr. Heather Hill, we spoke a lot about um, her creativity and innovation research, the, the cognitive research mm-hmm. she was doing. And one of the things that we found with the animals in the test sessions, which were 20 minutes long, was that they found them so stimulating and so interesting that we couldn't even get any reinforcement in. You know, they mm-hmm. they they just wanted to keep going and we would end the test mm. session after 20 minutes and they were like, where are you going? Yeah. Like, come back. This yeah. is fun. So, you know, after talking with her and obviously speaking with you and for anyone listening, I think that we're starting to see this kind of marrying of research and training and the way that we're progressing within the field. We are now learning maybe how to give our animals more choice, you know, how to really Mm -hmm. listen to our animals and understand their needs and adapt accordingly. Um, And for me personally, it genuinely gives me a lot of hope (laughs) for the future of this field and where it's going to go. Yeah, I think, yeah, you mentioned such a choice is such a buzzword at the moment. And that is choice and con- like giving the animals as much choice and control over their environment as possible is sort of a gold standard and it's obviously what they would have in the wild so as much as we can give that in in under human care I think that's I completely that's agree I mean the animals always have choice to a certain extent you know if they want to do what we're asking them to do or not but I think on a deeper level than that I think how interesting to ask them what do you want to do do you want yeah, to do exactly. a training session do you want to do research or do yeah. you want this toy or do you want this toy instead of trainers always choosing for them? Yeah, well, that's that's exactly it. And I think that's something that can be hard for trainers is, is like, um, it's, yeah, it's switching it around on its head because like, obviously their training sessions that does comprise all their food for the day. So, and I had this, a great conversation with this with Heather actually and Jason Brock on a, on a different podcast about, how voluntary is training and the things that we ask them to do and it's super complicated and nuanced and there's no definitive right answer but if we can aim towards the principle of giving them as much choice as possible i.e like you said asking them what they want to do or giving them multiple opportunities to say no i don't want to or i'd rather go over here that 
it makes it much more um yeah much more black and white than than the debate of you know well yes it's voluntary participation training but at the same time they still need to they still we've still got their food that's what they want so and that's mm-hmm. what they need each day and yeah I know you might yeah I mean on, on a on a very is a, we could debate this I think the two of us for, for like a, another hour um but yeah, yeah I mean I I do agree to some extent with that you know yes we do have their food but you know we don't always do all training sessions just with food you know there's some there are some yeah. facilities that do there definitely are facilities yeah. that focus primarily on primary reinforcement which is food um mm. you know for instance with the whales at Marineland and even Laurel Park we would train for the most part without food food was supplementary and you know that's where relationship comes in and how how reinforcing attention um to train for trainers and animals is so yeah there's there's so Mm. many different you know branches of research that that still still really needs to be done um but if if there's someone listening here who really wants to get into research with marine mammals what advice would you Mm. give them um I am going to copy from what I heard on your other episode of Mary because it, <laughs> it also was the one thing that started me off and really helped me is to join an association um, so she mentioned IMATA but for me it was um, the EWM for example in Europe or you've got other ones you know like the Alliance in, um, in the States or yeah there's loads of them who just like a group of like-minded people that yeah. are talking about research um you can go to conferences hopefully more conferences are virtual these days so you can it's more easy to join them absolutely so i definitely would say yeah find an association even sometimes it might be a local like or a regional one in in your area um another one especially for research is a listserv called uh, marmam i don't know if you you're part of that hazel but um, if you just type it into Google, Marmam, I think it's from University of Victoria, although I don't, I think that's in Canada, so I'm not sure, but just type it into Google and you'll be able to, for free, join this listserv. Anyway, they send out, I think it's the main collection of um, new research in marine mammals in the wild and captivity um, every, you can set how often you want to alert, but I think it's like every week. So you get that delivered to your inbox, like these are the new papers, they also post job uh, vacancies on their PhD vacancies, um, sometimes masters and internships too. So that Amazing. also really helped me. <laughs> well, don't yeah. worry, everyone listening. I will have links available in the description for you, um, and obviously you can find on either my social media or on um, Izzy's social media, which is at the Dolphin Doctor uh, on Instagram. Yeah. So you can you can always send her a message there if you want some information. Yeah, yeah. Or if you want to participate um, in anything with her, like she said, if you're feeling inspired by her words, you can always reach out. Well, thank you so so much, Izzy. It was so lovely to talk to you again. Oh, you too. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. And thanks to all of you for listening. So if you have enjoyed this week's podcast, then please do not forget to like, rate, and subscribe. Sharing on social media is always a bonus. And I will catch you guys next week.